Welcome back to the peripheral. I know it's been a little while. Uh, some of you know I uh, recently lost my sister. Uh, she was struggling with addiction and had some pretty severe mental health issues. A lot of people have suggestions on how to deal with grief. These suggestions range from taking long hikes on a mountain to walking on a sunny beach, which I think are all great ideas. But sometimes I think leaning into your grief and trying to understand it and hearing other people's points of view of what they've been through can be very cathartic also. With that said, uh, today I talk with Sarah who lost her brother to addiction. And if that wasn't terrible enough, she finds out another family member is struggling and when one family member struggles, obviously everyone is struggling. This story resonated with me. I hope that anyone out there who is in distress or wrestling with addiction can hear this and seek help. I am Sarah Carity. I'm the oldest of four siblings, two of which are addicts, and uh, I wanted to kind of share my experience about being a witness to and a sibling of someone going through active addiction, recovery, and ultimately the worst case scenario, which is death. Um, my brother passed away 10 years ago from his addiction and mental health issues. My sister is currently in recovery and not in active addiction, thankfully. What's your brother's name and how old was he when he died? So my brother's name is Raymond, and he was 20 years old when he died. He had a really quick and hard bout with his active addiction. His drug of choice was heroin, but anything and everything that he could get his hands on, he would take. It didn't really matter. It was just a matter of him getting it. I come from a one-parent household because my father is also an active addict. And he has alcohol-induced dementia. And in my opinion, there's no hope or help for him. And there hasn't been for a long time. Is he combative with you Is or does he just doesn't know what's going on? At this point, he's not combative. We don't talk. We haven't talked, I think, since the day my brother died. Because then he suddenly wanted to jump in and be the father and, you know, woe is me and, you know, my my son and this and that. But he didn't have a care in the world when everything was happening and he needed to be that support system and be that other person in my brother's ear trying to tell him like, hey, look at the path you're going down. This is the same path I went down. Um, and obviously it's not working out for me, so it's not going to work out for you either. So yeah, so we haven't talked in quite a while. He doesn't know that I'm married, that I have a daughter, and I have another one on the way. 
Um, and he's, in my opinion, just really missing out on a big part of what could have really been a, a good part of his life as well as mine. But I've made my amends with it. I mean, already I'm hearing how just alcohol can tear a family apart. Oh, absolutely. So what went down with your brother? My brother, for a long period of time, I was living at my mother's house, which is where my brother was living as well, because he was still in high school. And the December after he turned 18, things started to escalate and get really violent and combative. And he did get physical with me on, I believe, one occasion that I can distinctly remember. He kind of shoved me. And I kept bringing it to my mom's attention to say, like, hey, like, I think he really does need help. I think he really does need some type of psychiatric help, because at the time I thought that it was just some type of mental illness. So at this point, though, you don't even know about his drug use or anything. Correct. Yeah, I had no idea. I just really thought it was mental health. I thought, like, maybe he's smoking pot here and there. And I I really didn't think mental health. So my mom gave him the choice of either going to a hospital and getting evaluated, or he had to leave. And he had to go to my father's house. So he went there. He was there for maybe 48 to 36, 36 to 48 hours before he was back in our town living with or staying with a friend that lived right around the corner from us. And my mom was basically just like, we're not going to do this. So he agreed to go to the hospital to get evaluated. She brought him there, dropped him off and said like, look, because she was a mother of four. She's like, I have other things that I need to do. Call me once everything's done and I'll come in and you know, assist where I need to assist and et cetera, et cetera. But you're 18. And no sooner did she drop him off than he literally walked right out the front door. I'm sure called a friend, got picked up, got brought back to somebody's house. So we called the hospital maybe four or five hours later and they didn't have a patient by that name. They didn't have anybody in the ER by that name. And my mom freaked out. She got extremely worried because, you know, at that point she didn't know where he was. He wouldn't answer her phone calls. We had an idea that he was at the friend's house that was close by to our house, but really not positive. So she called the police and the police's only real option for us at that point in time, because he was 18, was that if someone within the household that he had either threatened violence against or displayed, you know, erratic behavior with, et cetera, et cetera, if they were to take out a restraining order. So it was basically between my mom and myself. The cop was like, look, it can either be, you know, yourself or your daughter because he's, you know, exhibiting violent behavior towards her. I couldn't let my mom go through that. I I don't, think that she would have been strong enough to handle that at that point. So I volunteered, took out the restraining order, and for the next few days kind of turned a blind eye because she would call him and he would call her to kind of just check in and say like, I'm here, 
I'm eating. I'm fine. And at that point, he's 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 like couch surfing with friends. He doesn't have yeah. any place. Yeah, like he he didn't have like a permanent place, but he was staying with this with a friend of his. Um, it was late one night when he called my mom. It was probably around like eleven, and said, "Okay, take me to a hospital. I'll be evaluated." She took him to the hospital. He was evaluated. She caught the nurse as the nurse had taken his blood. She followed the nurse out of the room and said, "Could you?" Um, run a tox screen. And I think that they were already going to just based on his behavior. But the nurse was like, yeah, you know, absolutely. I'll have the doctor order it. And before the nurse went back in the room, my mother caught the nurse in the hallway. And the nurse said he, he did test positive for opiates and cocaine. And she called me. And I was I remember I was out with my friends and standing right by a stairway and you could have knocked me over with a feather. I was like, cocaine and opiates? Like, what? I didn't even at that point know that opiates meant heroin. I was that naive. I was, I was just blown away. So from that point, it was really a daily battle. So when he got discharged from the hospital. My mom was pulling the car around to drive him home. And within the point of her getting the car and him walking out the front door, he disappeared within the town that the hospital was in, which was really not a great area. And called my mother within 20 minutes or finally he answered one of her calls and he was already high. And he had never been to the town. He never knew anybody, nothing. And he had maybe $10 on him. But he was that desperate. So my mom finally made it home. And I said, look, I'm calling and enacting the restraining order because technically he's violated it. So I called the police. They found him based on us saying that we thought that he was at the friend's house served him with the restraining order, which included at that time being arrested. So he was arrested and taken to um, the county jail where he awaited, I guess, the decision between him and I, if I was going to hold the restraining order or see what, you know, what's, what was going to happen. It was probably between like a 10 and 14 day period that he was there. And we had to call my father on like, a morning, noon, and night basis to basically say, he's going to call you. You can't bail him out of jail. You can't send the money. You can't, because he would, he knew that my father would. It was basically that like lapse in memory that my father still has that he wouldn't remember the phone call from this morning saying, hey, your son's going to call you from jail. Don't bail him out. So it was like a constant battle between, you know, calling him and dealing with that and then dealing with the calls from jail to put money on whatever card or it it was, it was a very stressful situation. A court date was set and my option was either to continue with the restraining order 
or what I wanted was to drop it and have him be court mandated into treatment. Uh, we were able to either talk to the prosecutor or the judge ahead of time and explain that as a situation. And the judge put it on the table and offered it to my brother. And he accepted to go to a 28 day treatment program in Florida. The caveat being that my mother's insurance that he was still under only covered outpatient treatment because it would be his first treatment center. The treatment center that was found had some type of, I forget exactly what it was, but just some type of um, way of billing to basically say that he was a Florida resident because he was there for that long but he was quote unquote homeless so that they had to provide shelter for him as well as treatment. So it was like a workaround with insurance that they were. It's just the bureaucracy of it. It's, you know, it's just so dumb. Yeah, but exactly. At the time, it wasn't as well talked about and as well versed, and we didn't know any places in the area, nor did we think it was a good idea in the area. And suddenly it was like Delray Beach, Florida, send him down there. So he went down for 28 days. And I think we collectively took a big sigh of relief and we're like, okay, that's over. Like now what? He came back 28 days later and probably relapsed the same day. It didn't occur to any of us. Like we, we were like, but wait, he just went through this thing. Like he got treatment. He should be better. And like we were very, very naive to the situation, as I'm sure a lot of families are in the beginning. I I didn't see that as an option. I just I just thought like, okay, well, you know, he's fixed. We're good. Let's move on with life. He'll go back to school. He'll graduate, et cetera, et cetera. We're good. And just fell into a pattern where he would relapse. He would then be sent back down to Florida. And then I believe he came back after the second one. And then the same thing happened. And then it was suddenly like, okay, we need to like get a better handle on this. So I started going to Al-Anon with my mom for family members of people with addiction. And it kind of just opened our eyes to how many people really dealt with it. You know, everybody going and sitting in the meeting kind of just like, this person's here for this or, you know, whatever. And then everybody started talking and it was like, wow, we are all living the same experience, but in different ways. And it really gave me a lot of empathy, I think, at that point for the for the struggle that my brother was going through and that we were all going through. Yeah. Cause it's, it's really easy for us to look at somebody else's problems and judge or think you didn't do enough as a parent or you didn't, you weren't there enough, whatever it is. Absolutely. I can remember saying, saying to him a million times, like, just get a job. You'll have something to focus on and then, you know, do this and do this and do this. And in my mind, it was logical from A to B to C would have worked, but it wasn't dealing with an addict's mind. 
and someone that had mental health issues. So he was evaluated by a couple of the treatment centers. They thought maybe he was bipolar, maybe he was depressed. There He was never sober long enough to be able to get a formal um, diagnosis. I believe that they want you to be sober for over a year to get a diagnosis of what exactly mentally is going on and what's the drugs. So he was unofficially diagnosed as bipolar and kind of went from there. He was medicated for that. And over the next basically two years, he was in and out. It would go from detox to rehab to halfway house and then all over again and then all over again. And I can remember times where the system in Florida is a lot different than here. And in order to qualify for certain detox centers, you have to be in a certain level of detox. You can't be too high, quote unquote, and you can't be too detoxed because then they won't accept you. So I can remember times of him calling and saying like, I need money to go out and get a little bit higher so that I qualify for this detox center. And at the time I'm like, what the fuck? Like, what is this system? Like, why? Like, how is this possible? Like, this is someone literally asking for help. Like, he was asking for something and they were like, no, you're, you're, you're not high enough. You're, you're too high. It's just like, it was just bonkers to me. Um, he did have a good period of sobriety for maybe three months or so where he was working a job. He was living at a halfway house and then somehow he went to, I believe, a Medi-Merge. I think he had like a sinus infection and went to a Medi-Merge for an antibiotic. And then I guess at the same time, explained to the doctor that he was having overwhelming anxiety. And the doctor was like, oh, okay, not a problem. Wrote him a prescription for two milligram bars of Xanax to take like multiple times a day. And in order to get them filled, I think he had to call my mom because she held the insurance card. And my mom spoke with the doctor and was like, do not give him that prescription. He is an addict. You are in Florida. You're in Delray Beach, Florida. Legitimately, the recovery and addiction capital of the entire world, do not give him that prescription. And the doctor was like, here you go. Take it. So he, at that point in time, in his mind, he didn't relapse because a doctor gave him the prescription. It was from a doctor. You know, that's what they suggested and et cetera, et cetera. He um, made a very significant suicide attempt. He had called my father first and then he called my mother, I believe, and was basically in his own way saying goodbye. And he proceeded to hang himself with a shoelace 
from a shower curtain in the halfway house that he was living at. And he was a big guy. He was 6'1", so he had to kneel to want it that badly to happen. At the time, I was on a small vacation with my ex-boyfriend, and my mom didn't want to call and upset me while I was gone, so I didn't find out until I was back. But he was found pretty, pretty quickly by the manager of the halfway house who walked in and didn't have anything to cut him down with. So he had to burn the shoelace that he had used with a lighter. And he was blue and he was on his way out. And somehow they were able to revive him. I'm surprised the shoelace would work. I'm surprised it didn't break. I know. I'm surprised the weight of his body didn't pull the shower curtain down, didn't anything. At that point, um, he was Baker acted, which is, I think, a law in just Florida. I'm not sure if it's here as well. But you can commit somebody to a 72-hour hold if they've uh, made an attempt on their life, if they've threatened someone else, if they've threatened violence against you, you can say it. You can explain it to them. So the paramedics brought him to the hospital. He spent two or three days there. And then my mom wanted him to come back up here and go through a detox and a rehab and a halfway house up here, which is in New Jersey. And I... um at that point, it got even more serious, I think, in my mind. Like, it went from, like, the drugs to, like, okay, now he's having suicidal ideations and, like, he's acting on them. And I just couldn't understand it. I'm like, he's he's 19. Like, what is happening? So he came back up here. He went through the whole program. We did a lot of family therapy, which the program that he was in encouraged so I think like every Friday night for, gosh, I think it was like three months, four months, we would go down and we would all sit in a big group with everybody and their families and things like that. And we would, you know, almost like an AA meeting, but with everybody collectively. And it really seemed like he was turning a corner and it really seemed like he was doing really well. So he went through the detox and then rehab there. And then they had a halfway house down in Florida, which he requested to go to. And I think for some reason, my mom's insurance covered that one better because at this point in time, she had probably put, I want to say about $40,000 of her own money into his treatment on top of whatever insurance covered or did not cover. So he went back down to Florida, was living in that halfway house, and he had about five months of sobriety when someone that he had met up here at some point in time called him and said, hey, man, like, you know, I'm living in Philadelphia. Why don't you come up and stay with me? And because he had a job, he didn't really like his job. Um... And he got on a bus and went to Philadelphia. He either relapsed on the way there or when he got to Philadelphia. And I guess it was known amongst addicts in the area, which 
I didn't learn until later on that the heroin that was coming out of the Philadelphia area was a lot stronger than, I guess, what he had been used to from New Jersey, from Florida. And then him not having a tolerance for being clean for so long. Exactly. And he picked up right where he had left off at the dosages that he was using. And he passed away on May 27th, 2011. It was life-changing. I look at my life and I feel like I've lived two lives. I lived a life when he was here and I've lived my life since he's been gone. Because it just changes everything. I couldn't for the longest time fathom that it was real. I just wanted to believe that he was in Florida and he was living his life and that he was fine. And the, I don't know if they have it where you are, but New Jersey within the past seven years, I would say, has passed what's called the Good Samaritan Bill. So if someone's at a party or if someone's with someone else and there's a person that's overdosing or there's a person that is in trouble, you're able to call the police and not have charges pressed against you as calling the police, even if you're also engaging in that behavior. So the boy that my brother was with, I think, knew what was going on and he waited and he like flushed the drugs or he used more or something and he waited to call the police. And then he finally did. Because he didn't want to get arrested. He did. Exactly. Like he didn't want to get arrested anything. I know that, you know, he was just as sick as my brother was. And I think it was probably about a, a week later or so we had to go down to the house where he died and pick up his stuff, like what he had kind of left behind. We walked in and he, the, Boy, Dan was obviously distraught, but obviously high. And I've never seen such an act of grace in my life, but my mother just embraced him and said, You're worth it. You can get through this. Don't let this define the rest of your life. You are a worthy person, and people love you. It, it was, it was just such a powerful moment in my mind that I don't think I'll ever forget because here's someone that could have saved her son and didn't. And she was able to have the empathy and the power within her to show love instead of hatred in that moment. She understood the same position that he was in that her son was in and she understood the struggles and was able to not only forgive but just acknowledge yeah and and 
and I, you know, I remember she wanted to see where, where he died and he brought us up to the room and it, it was just very sobering. It was very chilling and it was, it was cathartic, but I think it was something that needed to be done for her. I think it helped me in the long run. So he passed away in May of 2011. And then in January of the very next year, my sister, who was 18 months younger than him, was caught with paraphernalia in her car. And and when you say paraphernalia, I'm assuming she was caught with needles. I don't know. If there's needles. I want to say it was like a spoon, residue, wax paper. But my mom had to call and tell me and my other sister, and I was just like, "Are you fucking kidding me? Like you've got to be kidding me." It was like, you know, like I was being punked. This cannot be real. I don't think I wanted to talk to her. I just need some time to process everything and to to kind of go through all the emotions again. And I don't think I talked to her for probably about a month. She had gone down. I believe her first rehab was in Florida. And same thing. She came back. She was much better at hiding it and at being able to be cunning and manipulative, which I think was her addiction showing through. My brother, once we found out, I don't think he really cared that any of us knew. Like, he didn't hide it as well as she did. But it was also, I think, in all of my grief, it was me not wanting to know. I think I just didn't want to accept it. I didn't want to have that reality again. I was just like, we've already done this. Like we already had one. So I think we kind of just turned a blind eye to it. In retrospect, I felt at the time a weird sense of not relief, but almost understanding and sympathy that it happened to us again because we knew who to call. We knew where to go. We knew the ins and outs of rehab, the ins and outs of detox. I remember thinking like, like, okay, we've already been wounded by this once. You know, what's another round kind of? And thinking you know, at least it didn't happen to an unsuspecting family like we were the first time around. Because the first time around, we were really caught off guard and didn't know. That's a interesting way to perceive it. It took me a while to get there, but it, it was like, okay, we can manage this. She was back up here after her first 28-day stay, and she was fooling all of us and we were also turning a blind eye and probably not checking in as much as we should have or could have. And uh, Hurricane Sandy hit 
which was really detrimental to our area. She was babysitting for a family. That was like her job. So when Sandy hit, the family that she was babysitting for lost power. And I believe they had a house down the shore. So they went to that house, but they had asked my sister to kind of like check in on the house and, you know, kind of make sure that, you know, there wasn't any more damage done by trees falling, et cetera, et cetera. So she did that and she knew that one of the children that she babysat for had her piggy bank. So she took that thinking that the power would be out for at least 10 days to two weeks and that she would be able to repay it in the time before the family got back. The power came back a lot sooner. So she had to I either have to come clean to this family or have to come clean to my mother. So she picked my mother. And I want to say that I believe my mother just kind of fronted her the money and she cut ties with the family. It was like, look, I'm going into school more, whatever she said. But in all actuality, she was going down to rehab again. And then she went to a halfway house down in Florida. And it was, I don't believe in coincidences. I think that kind of, I don't want to say that everything was meant to happen. Like there's a reason she was assigned to go to the same sober living house that my brother was at. And we went down, I believe as a family to visit her. And I had been down there when he was living there. And when I walked in, it was like deja vu. All of the rooms were laid out the same. They're all kind of like dorm rooms where you would share a room with another person. And then there was another room that had two other, um, in her case, girls. So we walked in and if his was like 301, hers was like 201 and her bed was exactly in the same exact spot that his was. And I think I kind of just took note of it and then I had mentioned it to her much later on. Almost like a sign from him, I think, or I, I really don't know. Do you think it made an impression on her? Did she acknowledge that? Yes, I think I think it really did. I think she, once she was able to be sober and to kind of learn more about everything, it did resonate more with her. It felt like with her, like we could get through to her more. Whereas my brother, it didn't feel like it felt like it was a brick wall. She had a desire to change and that she really wanted to. It's kind of interesting that she was more secretive and lied more about it. And I guess maybe that's a, a sign that she was more shameful about it. Whereas your your brother was so brazen, that's why he wasn't receptive, I guess. I think that that's really right. Like she was the model rehab patient. Once she was confronted with everything, she was like, okay, like, what do I need to do? I need to do X, Y, and Z. And she'd relapsed here and there and would go through the cycle again. Um, right around the time that I got married, she was, my wedding anniversary is March 9th. And her at that time, one year of sobriety 
would have been March 11th. So she came up for my wedding and it was like reconnecting again. It was really cathartic and it was really nice to be able to kind of see her sober and to be able to see her enjoying her life because she hadn't for so long. She just seemed so miserable and was just sleeping all the time. And she just kind of came back to life. So after that, she had had about three years of sobriety. And she got into a relationship with a person that was supposed to be sober, but he wasn't. And she flew him up for one Christmas. And my whole family was just like, like, what are you doing? He was extremely controlling, extremely manipulative, just really not a compassionate person. We would be out to like a family dinner and he was glued to his phone, like didn't want to engage, but he wanted to be like Mr. Hotshot and then pay for the dinner. Or like he took her to the mall and bought her like a Chanel bag or he just really wanted to kind of like throw money around and impress, think he was impressing us in that way. And it was just like so transparent to us, but she had, you know, those love goggles on and she saw like he was buying her this and he was buying her that and da 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 so she'd turn a blind eye to this or that or whatever. So he came up for the Christmas prior, I believe, and I had my first daughter I had her early and I ended up having her the day before the death anniversary of my brother, which was really big for me. It was like a sign from him, I think, that kind of like, you know, this is good, I guess. I'm not sure, but it kind of now helps me get through that day because we have her birthday the day before and we're able to celebrate that. So she came up while I was in labor and it was rocky with him at that time. They'd broken up, they'd gotten back together, broken up, gotten back together. And she left. And then I think that July, I don't know exactly what happened, but she found emails. His phone and computer were connected. So he found, she found text messages and emails on his computer where he had literally been cheating on her with, I think like 30 to 40 other women. And she lost her mind. (laughs) She unbeknownst to us had relapsed prior but she really went hard back into it after finding out all of that i I know everyone has their their love goggles and everyone has what they will tolerate it's it's always i don't want to use the word interesting or anything but it's i always find that somebody can be abusive verbally even physical or get them into drugs but cheating is the line that people draw yes like that like that was where she drew the line (laughs) unbeknownst to us he was never sober he would still pop pills here and there she knew about it and then she would lie to us about it 
she had stopped going to meetings. She had started popping pills here and there before the cheating. And then after the cheating, she went straight to crack, honestly. I guess crack was the easiest for her to get. So her sponsor, who we were friendly with, like she was like a Facebook friend and, you know, encouraged her to come clean to my mother. And um, she did come clean and said, you know, I am using, I want to get help. She was able to get a full scholarship to a treatment center in Arizona. And she went out there for 90 days. She missed my other sister's wedding. So she was there for about 90 days. And then I think she stayed for maybe like a month after and worked at the facility and then wasn't sure what she was going to do. She had had a little bit of legal troubles as well. She was also stealing from the family that she was babysitting for. And a few pawn shops were actually able to trace it back to her. And then ultimately, she did decide to go back to Florida. She had had a very strong support network of young women that were in recovery and um, really focused on herself. She took up CrossFit. And then this time, I think she just took up, like, you know, going to the gym and really focusing on that. She got a job within a recovery system. She met her boyfriend who they just recently bought a house and we love him. (laughs) He's a really great guy. He's, I think he just celebrated seven years sober and she will have four years in August. So, I mean, every time, whether it was your brother or your sister relapsing, I mean, how did that make you feel like when your sister relapsed and missed the wedding? I was devastated for my sister that was getting married because I'm more open about our whole situation, about having a family that has addiction issues, and she's not. She, just the way she deals with things, she doesn't want to have to say like, oh yeah, my sister couldn't be here because she's in rehab. Coincidentally, it worked out to where there was a hurricane coming through Florida. So she was kind of able to just say like, oh, you know, the hurricane delayed everything, which was fine. That's the way that, you know, she coped with it. And I don't blame her. You know, I, I feel like that was the right thing for her to do. But I did feel very disappointed for her. And I was also very mad at my sister, Allison, who's the who is the addict because I had just had a baby and I was like, you just came up here. You met your first niece, your first anything, niece, nephew, anybody. Now you're putting such a wedge in our relationship where I'm becoming a new mother and you're now going through rehab for the upteenth time. I just felt like it was so selfish and just So just a slap in the face. I was like, you know, I was really hoping that, you know, our relationship would grow closer because of this. 
I had known that she was having trouble with the boyfriend and my husband and I had actually talked about extending our, we have a three bedroom townhouse and extending our third bedroom to her to say, Hey, why don't you come up here? And while you kind of take your time to get on your feet, why don't you watch the baby instead of us putting her into daycare and to look back on it. And I was like, you know, this is what I was going to offer you. Like I was going to offer you literally a place within my house. And here you are lying to me about using. I, it just, it felt, it, it hurt. It really, really hurt. As much as we don't want to take it personally, you take it personal. Absolutely. Yeah. Cause it's, you know, in my mind, I'm able to say day in and day out, it's a disease. It's not her choices. It's her addiction. But at the same time, it, it, she's my sister. And I already lost one sibling. I was terrified to lose her as well. And I felt like that was what was going to happen. It was really hard. The last relapse was really hard on me for sure. And then, I mean, even just thinking about it, like, I was kind of trying to talk it over with my husband last night to kind of write down, like, talking points and things like that. And, you know, right now, everything seems and feels great. And, like, they bought a house. And I believe they'll get engaged soon. Things seem great. But they could go to shit in the matter of a day. It could all be taken from her and from us the trust and the just ability to communicate and the I don't want to say the love because I will always love her unconditionally but just the the bond I guess and then having to rebuild that all over again was everybody that knew me you know would always say Oh, you know, how's your brother doing? How's your sister doing? And I got so sick of like recapping every rehab and hospital stay and overdose attempt and et cetera, that I finally was just like, today they're not using. Today's a good day. Tomorrow? I don't know. But for right now, today is good. Did you ever feel this happened to me where? My mom would give all the attention to my brother and sister, and no matter how good I was doing, I never got any attention, any, I'm proud of you, because there was always a disaster going on over there. Yes. I remember saying in like a fit of anger, when is it my turn? When can I just flip the fuck out and everyone is going to wait on me hand and foot? Like, when is everybody going to worry about me the way I'm worrying about them? I really reflected on it last night. And I think I was just, at that time, jealous of all of the attention and sympathy that I was pouring into this situation because I didn't feel like it was being reciprocated from my siblings. I was considered a parentified child where like one, I'm missing a parent. So I kind of take on that role 
for my mother. I'm always kind of like her sounding board and, you know, I love to be, but it was hard because it was, it was just like, Hey, could you look up this rehab and see what you think? Could you look up the, and like, I would, and I did. And, but it was hard even now, like if my phone's down and I kind of, you know, I'm working or whatever, and I have a missed call from say one of my sisters and my mother, my heart sinks. Like what, what now? Like I, I keep waiting for that other shoe to drop and for that other thing to come. Like it always, it's in the back of my mind, which I'm sure you understand as well. Yeah. In my situation, all the shoes have dropped and there's no more calls that are going to come in. And uh, my mom can't accept it really the way your sister couldn't because my mom won't say that my sister OD'd on heroin. She'll just say she died. Of course. Yeah. I forget where I had read the quote. I feel like it was Philip Seymour Hoffman. He had said, I never like to say overdose. I always like to say he died of heroin because there's never a safe dose of a drug like that. I'd never heard that. And I like that. It's true. It's all poison. Exactly. Yeah. Like it's, it's a hell of a beast. It's, it's terrible. And I later found out that the day of my brother's funeral, my sister's, my sister Allison's boyfriend at the time shot up in our house in the bathroom for the very first time. And I was just like, are you kidding me? And even her, she had only, she had never used heroin prior to his death. She had used pills here and there. And it took me a long time to be able to understand that that's how she was coping with the pain and the grief of losing him. I think addiction and mental health go hand in hand. Oh, absolutely. You know, half the time people are using because they're self-medicating or Mm -hmm. they have been using and then that causes mental health issues. I mean, it's, it's just a symbiotic relationship. Yeah, my brother was definitely dual diagnosed. I found out later from my mom that towards the end he was hearing voices. She was just like, I could tell that he just wasn't in his right mind. And um, my sister struggles with depression, um, not nearly as bad as my brother. But yeah, there's definitely a big connection. And I definitely think that he had started using because of all of the emotions that he was having that he didn't know how to express and control or let anybody know that, you know, he needed help. I don't know if my brother ever got officially diagnosed with anything, but me not being a doctor, he was schizophrenic. He would hear things and see things that weren't there from very young age. And every time my sister saw a new doctor or psychologist or psychiatrist, they gave her a different diagnosis. And I don't know if all of them were wrong or if all of them were right. 
Yeah, because the addiction can make it seem like it's so much that it is or that it isn't. My brother, he was on his way to that, to the goal of being sober for long enough to be fully diagnosed, but it never happened. So when you were talking about their, what you call it, the death anniversary, Yeah. So I hadn't even realized, but I just looked up. My brother died on April 28th of 2004, and my sister died on April 8th of 2021. They both died in April. Oh, my God. And add insult to injury, my sister's birthday is January 10th, and my brother's birthday is January 12th. So, Oh, I'm so sorry. guess April's and January's probably won't be much fun. Yeah. I feel very lucky, blessed, whatever you want to call it, that I don't have an addictive personality. Mm -hmm. Uh, And I don't even know if that's the right term for it. You know, I did my drinking and my partying and I just never was caught up with it. I just never wanted to have something in my life every day like that. And so I just never continued drinking or continued using drugs uh, it was always just a short phase for me. I always wonder, like, why me? Uh, you know, two of my siblings are literally dead. And, you know, looking at your family, like, you have, you know, one who's passed and, and one who's going to struggle her whole life. But, like, what's the difference between you and her? What's the difference between your other siblings, you know? Yeah, I, I think the exact same thing. I I actually didn't drink until I was 25, I believe. So I look back on it and I'm like, high school was like hell enough already. I couldn't imagine adding heroin and cocaine into the mix. Yeah, it was just such a mind-boggling experience. And I think that I did have, after my brother passed, a lot of survivor's guilt of like, you know, why wasn't it me? I feel like my personality and maybe it's just me being headstrong and thinking that I'm stronger than I am or stronger than he was or could have been, but you know, why wasn't it me? I I feel like I could have gotten it under control. I could have handled it. I could have, you know, lived a sober life and been fine. It just doesn't make sense. I guess I really, from time to time, will think, you know, like, well, what if I had done this differently? What if I had done that differently? Would it have changed in the end? Probably not. But who knows? We'll never know. And I I don't know if you also feel the same, but whenever I'm asked, whenever, you know, people are just trying to make conversation and they'll say, oh, you know, how many siblings do you have? I always pause because I never want to be that like Debbie Downer of the the conversation. And I always do say four, you know, I say I'm one of four, but I did have a brother that passed away and always inevitably goes to the, I'm so sorry. And this and that. And it's like, yeah, but I, I guess I, I feel like I'm doing like a disservice by not acknowledging it because he is in, he was and still is a part of my life. I named um, 
my daughter's middle name is Ray after him. And we have pictures of him and we've told her about him. And, you know, I want her to, to know him as the person that he was. Yeah, I, I guess I become the Debbie Downer when people ask me about my siblings because I just come right out and say it when people say, I'm sorry for your loss. I'm like, you know, it's fine. Let's just move on to the conversation. You know, like, like we don't need to dwell on this. <laughs> I've got a therapist. Like, we're good. We're good. Yeah, it's, it's tough. But like, I, I, like I feel like I have to say it. I feel like I have to say that, acknowledge it and acknowledge him. And I, I guess I'm, you know, all about trying to put these topics out there. So I don't hold back when it comes to people and uh, talking about it. But I know it probably horrifies my mother who doesn't want anyone knowing our business because they'll talk. And I'm like, well, mom, I kind of have like half a million people that listen to everything I say. So they're already talking. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's like, oh, sorry. <laughs> That's done and gone already. So. Yeah, that was that was a big shocker I think when we kind of came into the addiction world was that nobody talked about it. As soon as people realized that my brother was an addict, they would say, "Oh, you know, my cousin struggled with it. My such and such struggled with it. Like my wife, my you know, brother-in-law, my sister-in-law, my sister, everything." And these stories would just come out of the woodwork and I'm just like why isn't anybody talking about this? And I feel like it's changed a lot since he's passed, or maybe I've just noticed it more of people kind of sharing their stories, you know, just people actively talking about their struggles and things like that, which in my opinion can only help. It felt like at first, like it was such a shameful thing, but then I was, what do I have to be ashamed about? If it comes down to brass tacks, it's it's a disease. It's it's something that you know they didn't choose, and I don't think anyone would. And it's weird because like my brother's been gone for ten years, and there's still times where I run down the list and I'll call my mom and tell her something, and I'll call my you know next sister that lives in New Jersey and tell her something, and then I'll call my sister Allison and tell her something, and then it's like. Oh, wait, I can't call him. Like, I can't share it with him. I can't. I always knew when my brother was going through everything that death was a possibility. But I never thought it was going to happen. I was very naive to it, I think. And then when it did happen, I just fell apart. I just... It changed everything. I could tell you the dates that I last saw my brother in person, that I last talked to him on the phone. Like it just will never leave me. And I think since my sister does live in Florida, every goodbye that we have in person always really resonates with me. And I'm always kind of like in the back of my mind, like, is this the last time? Like, is this the last time that I'm going to see her? And I even still have the car. The last time I saw my brother was Thanksgiving and of 2010. And I was dropping him off 
to a meeting in the town over from ours. And I can remember like looking in my rear view mirror and seeing him in the back seat. And I still can't bring myself to get rid of the car. I don't know. It's, you know, I, I obviously can't keep a car for sentimental value. It's just one of those things like, it's just still there. I get it. I mean, my mom, she is going through all my sister's stuff right now and bagging it up. Mm. And then I go over there every two days and take everything she's bagged up. And I take it to the, it's not a Salvation Army, but it's like a place where you can just donate. There's certain things that are kind of sentimental to me, uh, but they both were kind of pack rats. And And they lived together. Yeah. My sister was 46 and living with my mom. So that kind of shows you the level that she could function at. Yeah. They say that when you're in active addiction, you're not maturing in any type of way, which I really to see to be evident with my father because I believe his addiction kind of reared its head in his late teens, early 20s. And as a child, like I never really saw it, but the older I got, the conversations that we would have on the phone, I was just like, you're not making any sense, not because of his dementia, but just because of his maturity level and just like the way he was viewing situations was just baffling. It just, as being a sibling and watching someone go through addiction and having it take their lives and then watching someone go through and having them still here has made me a lot more compassionate and a lot more forgiving. And I always try to have sympathy for what anyone's going through, no matter what the situation is. Like if, you know, they're crying over, they lost their job or something like that. Like I never try to, I never try to judge, you know, cause obviously that situation is very detrimental to them at that time. And I never try to compare and say like, well, you know, it could be worse and things like that. It's just, I, I always try to just put it into perspective for that person and, and realize, you know, it's, I guess, made me a stronger person in some ways. Yeah, it takes a chunk out of you, but you can stand a little taller. Mm-hmm. Yeah. First, I want to thank all of my Patreon supporters. It's your donations that make this possible. And a huge thank you to Sarah for sharing her story. Sarah told me that at Raymond's funeral, the pastor said, love is never wasted. And uh, I agree. I do not regret the love I gave to my sister during her limited time on this planet and never would regret any kindness I've ever shown anyone. As much as we like to think we're in control, addiction isn't something that we can handle on our own. If you are struggling, please seek help. If you know someone who is struggling, know that they aren't intentionally trying to hurt you. There are a few support groups for family members of addicts. Uh, Visit 
alanon.org, that's al-anon.org, or naranon.org, that's n-a-r-anon.org.